Welcome to episode number 11 of Nurses Living the Good Life. My name is Ann Conkley. I'm a certified nurse midwife and a certified life and business coach, and I'm so glad that you're here. Today, we're going to talk about the 1% better rule, and we're going to talk through why 1% improvement actually makes a big fucking difference. And we're also going to talk about why you may not consider 1% as anything meaningful or worthwhile for your time and energy, but I'm going to show you exactly why you should consider a 1% improvement as one of your goals. Um, before we get started, I just want to make note it is, um, and you know, spring here in Cleveland, we're approaching the end of April. Um, I've been working on some fantastic things for nurses living the good life and for my group coaching program for advanced practice nurses called women who cultivate. We've got something coming up on Tuesday that I'm so excited to share. It is a conversation about negotiation and the art and science of negotiation. And so I've been putting those slides together going through some of my, um, uh, the elements of psychology, the elements of behavioral psychology, namely that support some of the really important practices that can contribute to you feeling really confident, uh, in, a, in the course of negotiation. And for those of us who are using negotiation as a way to make sure that we don't leave money on the table in clinical practice, uh, or in business, I think it's a, it's a really, really important conversation to have. So so if you are a woman who cultivate, I will see you tonight when this airs, uh, it will be on uh, Tuesday, the first Tuesday in May, we meet on zoom from seven to 8 PM Eastern time. And we're going to really go at, uh, how to become a woman who uses negotiation to her advantage by understanding again, the art and science of it. So I'm working on that. I've got, um, uh, a couple of other ideas in the hopper for the podcast and I've been getting some great feedback, which also leads me as a reminder to you, if you like this podcast, I want to ask you if you would please go and hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to it on Google podcasts or on Spotify or on Apple podcasts. And I would ask you to leave a review and uh, let someone else know if there's something that you found in my words or in these conversations that's been supportive to you, please write it out so that somebody else knows that there may be some value in here uh, for them as well. So I appreciate that. Um, and then remember that if you do subscribe to the channel or to the podcast that you do get notified on every Tuesday when a new podcast drops. So go take a moment, go pause this. Actually, go do it right now if you can, uh, or do it when you first uh, finish this podcast and uh, let me know if this is making a difference for you. I certainly hope that it is. And my goal is for it to be supportive to you. So, so let's start, let's get started on this 1% rule. And I, I just want to frame this by talking about this one piece of um, uh, this uh, longer actually quote by James Clear, who wrote Atomic Habits. And this is a great book. It's one that I refer to. I read it um, and listened to it on audiobook. And actually, I learned about James Clear um, from two sources. One of uh, my colleagues who is a um, another coach and uses habits and the science around habits to support her clients in their transformation. And then also because I listened to Brene Brown's Unlocking Us, and I'm 
pretty sure that uh, Brene Brown interviewed James Clear on uh, her podcast. And if you know anything about um, me and Brene Brown and podcasts in general, I love Brene Brown. I think she's just got such a fantastic hold on emotions and she's so curious. And I love to listen to her because she points out things that I just haven't thought of. And she uses all of her background from her clinical practice or her her in the field practice as a social worker to really get at emotions and in essence to talk about vulnerability and which are sometimes, as we know, if we can identify feelings and we, we understand then what drives most of our behavior. So, so James Clare was interviewed uh, with Brene Brown and they discussed his book, Atomic Habits. And again, this was one of those uh, ones where I paused it right in the middle, went to um, Amazon and purchased the book right then and there. So I read it first uh, on in paper, and then I also have listened to it on audiobook. And on audiobook, I think it's great. I love audiobook. One of the benefits is that if you are a book reader and a uh, bibliophile, as we call them, or an avid reader of books, one of the best uh, tools I think is to use Audible or um, you know using your local library here in Cuyahoga County in Cleveland, where I'm located. We have a fantastic library system and a really good app called the Libby app. L I BBY. And it allows me to go and get books and to get them without paying for them, which I love, right? The maxer in me, the maximizer in me thinks that is just the fucking bomb <laughs> to be able to go to the library, put an audiobook on um, request and listen to it on my phone without having to go there in person and without having to pay Audible $16 a month to get one credit for one book, right? So um, there's a little beef I have with Audible, but whatever, it's neither here nor there. So uh, I listened to Atomic Habits on Audible or on Libby, actually. I use Audible as an interchangeable name for these uh, apps that uh, that can read books aloud. Um, and I don't know, I'm just going to mention this too. It's funny in that I wonder sometimes, I used to listen to books in the car when we would go on car rides, we would always go to the library. I would get a lot of written, uh, you know, books that were, that I would read, but we would always get books on tape and we would listen to them. And I just loved books on tape. I think it's one of the reasons that I love to listen to NPR. I love to hear stories and I love to um, hear the passion and the voice. And I love to hear the connection. And, uh, and so I think with audiobooks, you get a chance to do that in a way sometimes that you can't do it uh, with just reading it uh, on your own. So, so Atomic Habits, um, I, lis I listened to it and it was fantastic. And that book is packed with suggestions, with tips, and with things are supportive to become a person who is um, who takes habits and uses them to her advantage. And right, that's the benefit of a habit. When something becomes routinized or habitual in your life, it becomes a lot easier, right? It, the anatomy of the brain is so interesting because when we look at the brain, we can see that there are different elements. And this is going to be a very, very rudimentary kind of um, description of the brain. So bear with me. Um, you know, I'm a midwife in my specialty and a life coach in my specialties with, you know, breasts, uteri and um, cervices and, and ovaries, right? And, and nexa. So, so just, you know, my knowledge of the brain is, uh, you know, it's getting better, but bear with me. So 
we know in the basic setup of the brain that what's interesting is there are certain areas of the brain from which we operate. And there are a few main ones to be aware of when we look at the actions that we take and the reasons that we do things. The prefrontal cortex we know is this, the, the part of the brain that helps us to be more strategic. It helps us to, um, to be analytic, to be logical, to be abstract and thinking, to take kind of really um, a critical look at things. Um, it's our higher brain. It's our, the brain that is always the, the best version of the brain that's, that's there now in direct, um, opposition to that, so to speak is the limbic system. And the limbic system really is the, um, is our primal brain. It's our lizard brain. Some people call it, um, or our, you know, brain that kind of kept us safe back in the day when we were a human species that was just coming along and, um, and the primal brain or the, uh, limbic system is really driven by a few things. It's driven number one, by keeping us safe and protecting us. It's driven by, um, increasing pleasure. And it's also by driven by, um, by, uh, keeping us so that we continue to, um, procreate, right. So like so think of, right, you have these two elements of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, higher level thinking, very analytic, very strategic. And then you have the limbic system, which really is mostly all fear-based thinking um, and, and, and uh, all thinking that is designed to really keep us safe. And, and we just have to look at it when we look from an evolutionary standpoint, it's really important to understand that the limbic system really helped us quite a bit back in the day, right? When there wasn't a food available, when there weren't structures in place like homes with running water, right? When there was a limbic system thinking uh, and it ruled the day, the benefit was that if you were part of a pack or part of a tribe, then if you uh, committed to um, staying safe in that tribe, not being left out by the tribe, not being um, uh, extricated from the tribe, if you, if you maintained your safety, well, if you maintained your presence within the tribe and you didn't fluff feathers and uh, make any sort of kerfuffle, the beauty was that you stayed safe. And that was really protective for you because the people who did ruffle feathers, they probably got ousted from, you know, the tribe. They literally probably were um, left alone and think about it, right? Like if you don't have uh, food to eat, if you don't have shelter uh, to keep you safe and to, from prey or predators, right? That could be a really hard thing to do, right? If I'm away from the pack and my, my people are in my pack and I'm, you know, not in the pack and all of a sudden a tiger or a lion comes like I might just be mincemeat, like literally, right? So, so you have to consider that back in the day, the limbic system really was a useful part of the brain that really helped us to stay safe. It helped us to um, be a species that survived. It helped us to uh, to procreate and to make sure that we not only were there and we were safe and had access to food and shelter and, and tribe, but also that we were able to procreate and to continue on as a species. So when we look at the brain, it's interesting because one of the things I do a lot with clients and we talk about this is where are we operating from? Are we operating from the higher brain, from the prefrontal cortex, or are we operating from the limbic system and from that really primal brain and from that really, that lizard brain that really just wants to keep us safe? Because in this day and age, you know, as you know, there's no shortage of food around in, uh, in urban areas and maybe in rural areas too. But for most of us who are probably listening to this podcast, we don't necessarily 
necessarily have a uh, hard time get, having access to food. Many of us drive cars. Many of us live in, um, we have shelter in the form of a home. We have running water. We have electricity. We have all the things that um, of modern convenience, which also protect us and keep us safe. So when you are in the midst of uh, making a decision or you, let's say, are in the clinic and and maybe there is a lab that you need to deal with and it comes into your result box and you look at it and you say, and it's a, it's a problem. Maybe it's a CMP that's off, or maybe it's a vitamin D deficiency, or maybe it's an abnormal mammogram. And you look at it and you think, oh no, either I don't know what to do, or um, how am I going to figure this out? Or this is a problem. Your primal brain is kicking in and saying, this is a problem. This abnormal mammogram, that's a problem. And we should run real quick. We should get the hell out of here. Okay. And so, so it's important when you see like, oh, when you can identify, oh, I'm managing all of my labs from my pre, I'm either managing them from my prefrontal cortex, or I'm managing them from my limbic system. Then you kind of, you get into this, uh, ability to see that you're either using, uh, fear to drive the way in which you manage those labs, or you're, you're using confidence and you're using strategy and you're using intention to drive all of your actions. And it's neither right nor wrong, but if you want to become the advanced practice nurse who really sits very comfortably in clinic and who can manage any lab result, then it behooves you to be able to develop your prefrontal cortex and to know when you're operating from a place of fear and when your primal brain or your limbic system is really taking over. So the interesting thing is that this all ties into the 1% rule because in habits and the science of habits, because there's a third part of the brain that's really interesting. It's the midbrain. And the midbrain is responsible for automation and for the ability to take a teen of a task and to routinize it, to make it so that it becomes habitual. So, and you know this, you guys do this every day. So do I, every time that you get into a uh, car and you drive, it is highly likely that you are not absolutely positively focused on every aspect of driving every green light, every time it turns to red. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't stop for, you know, slow down for yellow, stop for red and go for green. What it does mean is though, is that you get home and you say, huh, I'm pretty sure I probably stopped all the red lights, but shit, I actually don't know if I did. I mean, I'm pretty sure, but I mean, I couldn't actually tell you if I did, right? That's when we have habits. That's when behavior, when it is part of our routine and it is habitual, that is where the automation side of the brain takes over and it just does, right? You don't necessarily have to tell your foot to step on the brake um, when the red light in front of you on a car goes off. But what happens? Well, after you drive enough times, you get pretty good at noticing depth. You get pretty good at noticing when red lights are, um, there are many red lights ahead of you or many stop cars ahead of you. And so your brain interprets that and it does habitual movements, right? It breaks for stop and it goes to the gas for go. So there's a part of the, there's these three parts of the brain. And what's really interesting is that the science of habits is really taking um, is really allows us to connect and to, to take things that are somewhat challenging to do and to make them more routine. And we see this a lot with, um, exercise. Exercise is a really good example of how you can make something habitual. So, right. If we were talking about the science of habits and we're talking about how there's, you know, in the science of habits, there's cues, actions, and rewards, if I'm thinking about becoming a person who desires to walk or to have a daily walking ritual, 
then I want my cue to be set up so that my shoes are visible to me when I get out of bed. And then I want that cue, once I see it, to say to myself, okay, I'm going to put my shoes on now. And that cue is for me that that helps me to trigger my or increase the likelihood that actually, if I put my shoes on, I will go out for the walk. Right. And then the reward is that I did the walk. I did the thing. Right. And so if we are, um, and there's plenty of ways that you can actually reward yourself for if you're, if you set the system up, right. So I can say, well, if I set the shoes up and my alarm goes off at five 15 and I, and I wake up out of bed and I set my shoes there so that I see them as my cue. And then the action that I take is, uh, to go and put my shoes on to prepare for the walk. And then I go and do the thing. I go actually take the walk, the reward then I get to choose how to reward my brain. And what's interesting is that the, the elements of the brain are that it's very, very uh, malleable, so to speak, right? There's this concept of what's called neuroplasticity. And so we have the opportunity to really shape and influence the brain in a way that supports us in developing habits and that supports us in becoming, you know, better versions of ourselves or in doing big things or, you know, meeting big goals. So when we look at the science of habits, also looking at there's a huge part of it that really helps us to if we want to improve our ability to meet that goal, right? If I want to become the person who logs, let's say 15 miles of walking a week, then I could become the person who decides to set up a system and to create a habit and long lasting routine uh, in my brain so that I, I can be, become the person who, right, uh, is the person who walks 15 miles a week. Right. So habits are really interesting. Now, what's interesting is James Clear talks about this in terms of um, a really approachable and I think a, a way that that is very easy to understand. So here's what he says in his book um, called Atomic Habits. Uh, small differences in performance can lead to very unequal distributions when repeated over time. This is yet another reason why habits are so important. The people and organizations that can do the right things more consistently are more likely to maintain a slight edge and accumulate disproportionate rewards over time. You only need to be slightly better than your competition, but if you're able to maintain a slight edge today and tomorrow and the day after that, then you can repeat the process of winning by just a little bit over and over again. And thanks to winner take all effects, each win delivers outsized rewards. We can call this the 1% rule. The 1% rule states that over time, the majority of the rewards in a given field will accumulate to the people, teams, and organizations that maintain a 1% advantage over the alternatives. So you don't need to be twice as good to get twice the results. You just need to be slightly better. The 1% rule is not merely a reference to the fact that small differences accumulate into significant advantages, but also to the idea that those who are 1% better rule their respective fields and industries. So I think that this is fascinating, right? And I think when I think about all of the conversations that I have with clients, and I think about my own experience of being a woman advanced practice nurse, being a certified nurse midwife, being someone who, who started off as an assistant medical director, became a medical director. I think about the big, you know, the big goals and the eye on the prize. And really, you know, I think about the idea that sometimes we have in creating big goals for ourselves, 
we think about, you know, all of the changes that need to be made and we shoot really, really high and, and for the skies. And that's not actually a bad thing. But what's interesting also is that if you consider the 1% rule that it has some merit and that maybe it's true, then that means that even the smallest of differences in your performance, even a 1% change can accumulate into significant advantage for you, right? And so what's interesting is, and we, I just want to be clear, when we talk about significant advantages and this idea of becoming better and of winning, here's what I want you to think about. I lo- now I'm going to be very honest with you. And if you, you know me, you know this, my, my coach and I, we always talk about it. Hashtag winning is like one of my, you know, uh, theme songs or anthems, so to speak. Like I love to win. I love to win. I'm highly competitive. I am, um, double down on, you know, being the person who meets the goals, right. Want to run the marathon. I'm going to do that. Want to walk 60 miles for breast cancer. I'm going to do that. Want to do, you know, unmedicated childbirth. I'm going to do that times two. Cause I like to win, but here's, what's interesting. If you consider winning, then we also, right. You, you have a framework, which is like, I'm either winning or I'm losing, but here's what I want to offer to you. You can have the winning, um, this winning idea or framework, and it can only apply to you. So you could be actually winning in the game of you, right? We don't actually have to be competitive with other people. We actually don't have to be competitive with other advanced practice nurses. We don't have to be competitive amongst uh, other APPs. We don't have to be competitive with physicians. We can just, if we apply a 1% rule, we can actually just consider that All I want to do is I just want to win. I just want to be a better version of myself today than I was yesterday. I just want to have a 1% uh, improvement in how I show up for my patients and my clients today than I did yesterday, right? Like I don't, it doesn't need to involve anybody, right? Winning can be a, an, an, an endeavor that you could just take on and you could be the only player in that game. And I just want to offer that, that may be supportive to you because some of you will look at this and say, boy, I don't like conflict, conflict. I really don't like, you know, being in competition with people. And we can talk about that. Actually, there's a good reason to get coached, to be quite honest. Uh, but, but I also just want to offer that if that is the story that you have, just think about like, but what if I was just in competition with myself? What if I was just like, wanted to be 1% better tomorrow than I am today? What could that look like? is that fun? Like, is that, does that get at me? Cause for a lot of my achievers and for a lot of my, um, uh, clients, right. Who are tend to be the go-getters of the world. They will be the, they are the people who change the world. They will be the per- people who change, who continue to change the world. You know, sometimes it can become, um, hard to be in competition with others, right? Because then you play in this compare and despair game. You start looking at other people, you, you know, you again, begin to just compare yourself to them. And then it just drives all of this despair and this feeling of like not being good enough and imposter syndrome and all that shit. So instead of doing that, let's just say like, but what if we were just 1% better in terms of our own performance and the way in which we show up in our own lives? So I just want to offer like, what, what could you actually do with 1%? Because 1%, you may actually poo-poo it and be like, wow, who the fuck needs 1%? Like, why? Why am I going to be 1% better tomorrow than I am today? Well, I want you to think about, get curious here and ask yourself, but what could I do with 1%? What if I was 1% quicker in the office? 
What if I was 1% quicker with my charting? What if I was 1% quicker on getting out the door in the morning? What if I was 1% quicker on grocery shopping? What if I was 1% quicker on um, taking my walk in the morning? What if I was 1% better at lowering my cholesterol? What if I was 1% better at bringing my hemoglobin A1C down, right? Like 1% actually could be a lot, right? We could do a lot with 1%. I mean, I just want you to think about that. Like what if you saw your patients have 1% improvement in their hemoglobin A1Cs or 1% improvement in their uh, blood sugar control or 1% improvement in their, um, I was just thinking about like, if they didn't want to get pregnant. Like if you just wanted, right. If we, if we really wanted to have a conversation about, um, you know, childbearing and we want to have a conversation about larks and like, if we could improve that conversation by 1% in terms of how we discuss larks and, um, conceiving and whether or not that's something that a woman of childbearing age desires to, um, to address in her life. Like if I got 1% better at talking about options for her, like, what could that do for her? Like that could be the difference between her, um, getting access to resources that can really be supportive to her and not like, that's huge, huge. Right. So, so think about that. What could that 1% actually afford you? Um, and I just want you to know, you know, very often when, when we look at 1% changes, I think there becomes this, um, it's kind of an interesting conversation to have because you and I can sit here and talk about 1% changes and say, oh, wow, that would be really great if I could be 1% quicker in the office and 1% better at, you know, finishing, closing my charts on time or closing them before the patient even walks out of the room. And I just want to say that we have to, we can't have that conversation without also talking about why you're not already the person who goes for a 1% improvement. And very often I see this come up quite a bit with, with clients about this story about, you know, it's gotta be right. It's gotta be perfect. Right. And if we just take the example of closing charts, right. We know that if you see 25 patients in a day, you got 25 charts to close some places put into, uh, put into effect a policy around, you know, closing those charts within three days and if you don't close those charts, then you are subject to either a suspension of privileges, or maybe you are subject to a, a financial loss. I've seen all sorts of rules put in place to try to incentivize or uh, advance, you know, clinicians to complete charts. Um, and we know that there's a real downside to this, right? If you are the uh, advanced practice nurse who receives a patient, who sees a patient and looks back at the chart and you know that your colleague saw her two weeks ago and the, and the chart's not actually closed and the plan's not actually in, it makes it a lot harder. Cause then you're like, so, Hey, so you're seeing the patient. You're like, so just tell me a little bit more about what went on last time. Like, let me just get to that. Right. Like, let's just talk about what you guys decided last time. Cause it's not in the fucking chart. Right. So closing charts is kind of a big one. And I know if this is something that you've ever struggled with. Um, like I have, which I struggled with quite a bit when I was, um, in clinical practice, um, you know, you have to question, but like, why is that so hard? Right. And many of us have this idea of like, well, but there's a right way to, to like chart and there's a, it's gotta be perfect. And I gotta make sure I get all of the things in. And I, I really got to make sure that the story's clear and I gotta, you know, make sure that the, you know, uh, AMP are on point and, you know, and I don't, and sometimes there's this, 
there's this desire or this need or this thought like that it has to be perfect. Like I got to do it right. And for most of us, and I don't know about you, but for most of us, that thought of it has to be perfect drives a lot of anxiety and a lot of that feeling of like, oh, you know, the flutters in the chest and the, like the anticipation and not in a good way. Right. And so, um, and so what happens? Well, you know, if you're the person who's like, but it's gotta be perfect. And then all of a sudden you have a patient in front of you and you don't yet have an, another patient roomed and you're looking at the chart and you're like, but it's gotta be perfect. And you're like, but, um, wait, maybe I should just, um, well, I'm going to start, but I actually need to go sit in my office and then I, I'm going to like get it all right. And I'm going to just make sure I have all of my, you know, eyes dotted and T's crossed. And then you get into the office and what happens, like, you know, the dots change and all of a sudden you're like, oh, I have another patient in room three. Right. And so in that time of getting up and thinking, I got to go to my office, I got to make it perfect. I have to actually just go and like, I have to have this whole structure in place that I can sit down and chart. Right. All of a sudden you've lost three to four minutes and what could happen in those three to four minutes? Well, if you use a 1% rule, you could say, well, actually maybe in three to four minutes, I could actually just write the note and close chart. Like how would that, like, I really probably could. And if you're like, no, I can never write a note in three to four minutes. I would say, then you have some work to do because this is one of the skills that I think is most important to cultivate as you become a clinician, right? Being able to be very concise accurate to chart what is necessary and to leave out all the fucking fluff. Right. And you know, if you're a person who charts with fluff. And if you're a person who likes to have long paragraphs and really long subjectives. Now, look, if you use a, di- a dictation system like dragon or something else, and you just dictate in free for all, and that becomes your subjective good for you. Cause you're probably saving time on the back end. But I also want to tell you that if you're the person who reads the notes of the person who has dragon and those notes haven't been corrected and they haven't been really edited down to get the concise details across, which are important, right? Like the old carts of the HPI, it becomes a lot harder for you as the next clinician to read through that note and be like, you're, you're like searching for the important shit. You're like, wait a minute. Like, I really don't need to know what kind of episiotomy she had. Like if I'm evaluating vaginal discharge, I don't need to know what kind of the episiotomy she had like 10 years ago when she had her first child, right? Like it doesn't, not pertinent to this, this moment right here. Um, so, so you maybe if you, if you just have this running theme behind you, like, oh, it's gotta be perfect. I gotta be, I gotta, like, I gotta be in the right space and you know, the notes gotta be really good. And I gotta make sure I get all the things like you're just overthinking right? You check So you're checking it, you're rechecking it. You're spending a lot of time and thinking about writing the note and not actually writing the note. And sometimes, you know, when you do go to write it, then all of a sudden you're like, Oh, but I don't feel like writing it. Right. Like all of a sudden you have a gap in the schedule, 15 minutes. And you're like, Oh, I don't want to close my notes. You're like, Oh, I'll just go on, you know, Amazon and order the toilet paper. Cause I forgot to do that this morning. <laughs> right. You just avoid and distract. And you're like, what else can I do? Oh, there's Kelly. I'm just going to go. Hey, Cal, how was your weekend? Is it good? Yeah. You're like, I'm just going to go to the water cooler. Right. Or like have a conversation with somebody. I mean, you know, and you know yourself, right? Like, you know, if you are, if you do this in the office, I mean, I can say this from a space of, of laughing about it because I know that I used to do this shit all the time in the office. I just had this thought like, oh, it's gotta be right. And then all of a sudden I would just be like overthinking it. I would then write it and I would be checking it and rechecking it. I'd have paragraphs in there. Oh my God. And you know what happens? Well, (laughs) You waste so much time going for that, you know, getting it right. 
And, and, and not to mention the fact that you perpetuate this narrative or the story in your brain that is like, there's a perfect way to do it. There's a right way to write a note. No, there's no right way to write a note. We know what we have to do to get reimbursed. We know what we need to do in terms of all the components of a soap note, but there are a lot of variations of, on how you can do that. And no one way is better than another. Honest to God, like they're not. I mean, I think my way is better because it's more efficient, right? Using bullet points, <laughs> excuse me, not using punctuation, you know, just becoming the like very concise and very to the point uh, as I as I write and type. Um, but you know, if you are the um, person who is stuck in like, oh, but it's got to be right and it's not, you know, you are going to spend a lot of time going for perfect. And what's interesting is like, I want you to just think about it, right? You're, you're striving for this ideal. That's number one, not really really realistic. Um, but also think of all the suffering that comes with when you are delaying, when you're overthinking, when you're checking and rechecking, when you're writing a goddamn novel about a patient, like it's just, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. You're like, wow, I could have just written the note. And, and some of you guys will be able to see this because you'll You'll be able to see when you go into a note and when you go to close a chart or write, you know, finish a note where it was really easy and you're like, oh yeah, badge discharge, you know, started on Tuesday, you know, you like run through your old cards, you put in your objective data, you put in your assessment. You're like, it's, you know, here's, I went, looked under the microscope. There's clue cells, you know, uh, positive whiff. She's got a P elevated pH. Okay. You know, diagnosis BV. Uh, plan, treat with metronidazole, BID seven days, you know, come back if no, you know, call if no improvement in symptoms. And then maybe you're like, oh yeah, we're also going to screen for other STDs, including trichomonas and gonorrhea chlamydia because there's discharge, right? Like you now, when you have that note and you're like, oh yeah, like when you can bust through a note and then all of a sudden you can look at some of these other notes that you wrote and you're like, why is this taking me so long? <laughs> there's a difference. And if you are a clinician, if you've been in you know clinical practice for some time, you probably have, you know, your notes where you're like, oh, I'm going to fly through that one. And this one, you're like, that is not as quick. Okay. It's going to take me a little bit longer, but it usually comes from the thought of like, it's got to be perfect or I've got to get it right. Right. And that thought of it's got to get, I've got to get it right. Just creates that there's some perfect way out there and you're just trying to, you know, go for perfect and not necessarily actually just write the note just as is right. Without judgment of it. Like it doesn't have to be perfect. It just needs to be completed and written. So, so I want you to consider what if we could say that instead of going for perfect and going for getting it right, what if we just go for a 1% improvement? And I don't know about you, but that feels very powerful to me. Like I'm just going to improve by 1% every day. That feels very, very powerful to me. So what happens when I look at a chart? I'm like, oh yeah, I'm just going to I'm just going to improve by 1%. I'm just going to get a little bit better at closing the chart. I'm not going to allow a chart to stay open for a couple of days. I'm going to close this chart today before the patient leaves. Like, what if that was my 1% improvement? Like on one patient today, I close the chart before the patient walks out of the room. What if that's your 1% improvement on charting? What if your 1% improvement on charting is that you decline to write paragraphs and you start using bullets? What if your 1% improvement is that you stop using punctuation and you start just doing one-line sentences without any sort of punctuation, one-line thoughts, we could call them. Sentences would imply punctuation, right? Like how could that feel? I just feel like that's like, that's winning. You want to talk about hashtag winning? Hashtag winning if I can crush it, okay? 
And I think for all my business owners out there, I think about like, what could we do if we did a 1% improvement in business? What if my Facebook ads were 1% better? What if my consult closing rate was uh, 1% better? And what if I kept getting 1% better at my at my consult rate, right? Of closing it. What if I got 1% better at delivering a podcast? What if I got one? Do you see where the opportunity is, right? 1% sounds like it's just so minuscule and it's not worth it. And like, eh. no, 1% is everything. Like, what if that was the thought? Like, I'm just going to do it by 1% and 1% is everything, Right. So I think that there's so much opportunity with 1%, but you have to be onto your brain. You have to kind of see if you are the person who says, yeah, I could do 1%. I think that sounds good. Absolutely. I could go for 1% in a lot of different areas of my life. Good for you. And if you're the person who says, fuck 1%, like I don't even have time for that. And I would say, why? And what's at the root of that? What elements of perfection are going on? Perfectionism are going on there. You know, what are, what's the story that you're telling yourself that 1% isn't worth it, that it has no value, that it's not useful, right? And, and what story kind of, are you willing to change? Because look, if you want to become the advanced practice nurse who closes the charts on time, who doesn't get dinged by our organization, whose credentials aren't suspended, who doesn't get fined for having open charts, who doesn't have, if you want to become the advanced practice nurse, who doesn't have colleagues who look at her and say, why didn't you close your damn charts? Like get it, get the work done. If you don't want to be that person, then I'm going to encourage you to consider what's my 1% going to be today? What 1% am I willing to commit to today in order to get a little bit better? Knowing full well that if I commit to a 1% improvement, that I will over time increase all of the advantages, I will increase significantly over how I perform and probably also over how my rivals perform, right? I may be able, what if I could, with a 1% improvement, what if I could rule my field? What if I was the, what if I was the best, you know, chart closer in all of the advanced practice nurses that ever existed? Like some of you will be like, why do I even want to be that? But some of you are like, fuck yeah, that's what I want. <laughs> Cause you're like me and you want to win, right? You want to hashtag winning just like I do. Girl, it takes one to know one. You're in good company here. Okay. So, so think about that 1%. And I want you guys to think, you know, I've given you some things to think about in terms of the, the way in which the brain operates, the way in which you are, why habits are so important, how to become a person who, right. Why, um, how to become a person who uses habits to her advantage. Um, why 1% actually makes a difference. What is available to you? If you can, if you consider 1%, uh, and the opportunity that 1% could provide you. And then if you are not the person who, uh, appreciates the 1%, then right. It's time to get curious and say, why, Am I going for perfect? And how is perfect stopping me up at small wins, right? Small changes make big waves over time. And that's that there's so much opportunity there, right? And it's a great place to start because it's easy. 1% is easy. And I love easy on my way to hashtag winning. So, so, all right. Uh, I think we've covered some good stuff. Um, Remember, if you want some more support with us, 
I have created women who cultivate my group coaching program for women advanced practice nurses. So to help them stop feeling so exhausted and worried and stop fighting all the perfectionist bullshit so that they can start showing up very powerfully in clinic and in their lives and in their relationships and in their negotiations and in their conversations with their bosses. So if that's something that is of interest to you, come and check us out. You can find more information at www.annconkleycnm.com. Set up a time to talk, let's chat, but get into Women Who Cultivate if you want to become that advanced practice nurse who says, give me my 1%. I want to fucking win all day, all night. Let's go. I will see you guys next time. Take care.